All right. Well, welcome again to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. I am your host, Raymond Hawkins, Chief Revenue Officer at Compass Data Centers. Today, we are joined by the Editor-in-Chief at Space IT Bridge, Doug Money. Also, thank you so much. Doug, okay. thank you for joining me. And uh, Doug, if you are willing, we'd love to hear you give us a little bit of background on yourself. I know that uh, ultimately writing about uh, data in space is, has been a bit of a journey from you for you going back to the IP day. So if you don't mind going back to the beginning, we'd love to hear your story. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, we don't have to spend two hours on my story. Um, I started out in uh, with a, an internet startup back in the mid-1990s um, that went public. Um, it was uh, Digix in the Washington, D.C. area. And then after I got out of that internet startup, I went into another um, startup that dealt with the internet and satellites. So that kind of like meshed two worlds there for a while. And um, from there, um, the company, which started out as uh, Skycash and now and got renamed Sidera, just before it was supposed to go public and then didn't go public due to the uh, dot com crash, um, I ended up at uh, I ended up switching careers from being in um, doing marketing and sales within companies to writing about um, uh, companies. So I started writing about internet data centers um, and satellite stuff, and then uh, somewhere in my head, I got it. I got it in my head that, hey, if I write about satellite stuff and I can connect it to data center stuff, I could go to space launches and have an excuse to go to space launches. So um, that's kind of like where I ended up at Space IT Bridge uh, today, talking about the intersection of um, space technology and IT technology, which um, not a lot of people are talking about right now. And um, I mean, people are starting to get savvy to the fact that um, there are there's a tremendous amount of data being generated by satellites today, and that number is I don't want to say exponentially increased, but dramatically increased through the next several years as more companies put up constellations of satellites um, to observe the Earth and to uh, do communications um, to, to keep track of ships and planes, the IoT side of things. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dig into all that, Doug. So before we get, because I'm I'm with you, Earth observation and shipping routes, all that stuff's all gonna be great stuff. We'll get to. So do me a favor. Let's go back to Digex just for a minute. What the the business there was strictly IP managing IP circuits and those kinds of things. Uh, Digex, well, Digex had two uh, uh, two main businesses. They did connectivity, that is lease line lease lines. Um, uh, connectivity for businesses. And then the other side of the, the Digex equation was uh, uh, web hosting, which evolved into the cloud today. So we were, we were running servers for people like uh, CIA, American Association of Libraries. Um, Amtrak was one of our customers at, at the time. So there were a lot of good mix of government and uh, uh, commercial side people. 
Gotcha. So yeah, Doug, we, we call it cloud today, but yeah, the concept of hosting your compute somewhere else is not new. And I certainly remember fondly the phase that we called hosting, web hosting and server hosting. So yeah, okay. So that's what Digix was in the hosting business and the connectivity business. And then walk me through Sidera. Do I want to make sure I say it? Sidera Analytics. Um, walk me through that business. Well, Sidera, the company, used satellite broadband in order to okay to deliver. Um, uh, bulk information to the edge of the internet because back um, back in I'd say pre two thousand ish, you, you, the big issue was moving larger bulk data from um, where it was located at, meaning data centers and um, well and the like, to the edge, to what we now call the edge. And satellite broadband was a way to deliver data directly to the edge without having to move it. Um, through uh, terrestrial choke points or connection points. Um, so at the time, it seemed like a really great idea until um, dot com turned into dot bomb and a lot of the, um, uh, and then it was revealed that a lot of the hype about, you know, being there, an infinite demand for fiber kind of died off. There's an oversupply of fiber. Um, and then satellite um, just proved not to have the bandwidth um, in order to deliver bulk data that, that fiber did as, as more and more people got connected to fiber at lower and lower cost. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and thus we see fiber everywhere today. So, so you can steer me away from this, but I'm going to have a hard time not asking you when you have the inquirer on your resume, just got to ask, what was your, what was the working at the inquirer like? <laughs> well, this wasn't the national inquirer, but this oh, okay. Was All right. No. Inquirer. Um, I got you. Which, you know, UK Inquirer was a cheeky publication. Um, they were fun to, to, to um, work with. Um, and they would, um, you know, they have that, that British sensibility or flavor of being a little bit snarky when talking about um, IT issues. So, so it was really fun working there. But no, it wasn't the National Inquirer. Not that Inquirer. All right. Good I, stuff. Would be, All right. I, would, I would be in recovery if I was worried about it. <laughs> No. All right. So a lifetime in, in technology, mostly networking, sales and marketing, um, as as that business matured, so decided, hey, this is fun to write about this stuff. So give me a little bit of the personal background of what got you fascinated, because we're, we make the jump from IT sales and marketing over to space. Your, your personal interest in space. What, what was the first thing that you said? Hey, that's cool. Uh, did you see a launch? Uh, what, 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 what got you fascinated with space? Well, you know, like any, any any child of the '60s and '70s, you know, <laughs> it, uh, you know, there was a big love of Apollo and a big love of of going to the moon, and then uh, you know, and then it evolved into hey, the space shuttle is cool, and astronauts are cool. So a lot of people from that generation, sorry, TikTok kids, um, you know, we we had a good uh, a good foundation there, and I found that um, as the um, space shuttle program was winding down it was i, I wanted to go see a space shuttle launch because i'd never seen a space shuttle launch um so there was this interesting confluence with the government sponsored um the government push um for space systems as it wound down there was at the same time a, a start of um commercial activities um Basically, you know, how do you make money out of space without without the space shuttle, or how do you make money out of space um, uh, with uh, off the shelf data? So, I mean, there's been a over the past decade, there's been this mind shift, and 
in terms of how people think about space and where um, in pioneers in in the in the sector realized that you don't have to send up these big expensive satellites in order to make money. You can build smaller satellites and smaller satellites mean that you can send them up cheaper. And if you can build and send build satellites and launch them cheaper, you get into this, God help me, virtuous cycle that um, uh, you can uh, get more data um, you collect basically what it boils down to is basically you get more data um, back for less capital cost of launch and building satellites. So that's what a, a bunch of companies started to do. And that's and, and then that whole ecosystem started developing, like a lot of people building small satellites and um, building companies around them. And, and then today, now we have this uh, proliferation of companies like um, Planet and Satellogic and Black Sky and you know tons of other people who have who are building satellites, building large constellations of satellites um, to collect uh, data by photographing the Earth or, or whatever. And, and and that got to be very interesting because now they're now what they're doing is they're they're going public through SPACs and um, um, raising lots of money. So it's it's a very happening place to be right now. Yeah, Doug. There's lots of, uh, of course, visibility and conversation. Uh, I know the, the the our 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 media darling billionaires keep shooting themselves into space, and everyone wants to watch that. So, so you wanted to see um, uh, a space shuttle launch. Uh, you grew up, you know, with the affections for the whole Apollo mission and how do we catch the Russians? And Sputnik scared everybody. Um, I'm dating both of us with those references. And um, how do you make the leap? W w where does space IT come into your uh, you know, purview and you decide, hey, these guys are a great place where I can write about technology and write about space? How did that come about? And then we'll, I want to get into a bunch of the subjects you've raised. Well, I think I got it. It, it just struck me, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to say once a generation, but, you know, once a decade, you see a paradigm shift, right? We saw this with personal computers, right? Where blah, 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 we had all these junky personal, well, not junky, but we had all these primitive personal computers. And then all of a sudden the IBM PC came out, bang, businesses all, they all had to get IBM PCs and they all had to get, or, you know, and all of a sudden everybody had a, a personal computer within, you know, I don't say overnight within a three, five year period, it, it had to be the thing. Okay. Then from the eighties, we shifted to the nineties and then you had that same phenomenon where the internet was this geek toy and, you know, where academics, uh, you know, academics were sending an email and, you know, I'm talking blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, um, when the internet went commercial, um, for whatever definition of commercial, bang, three years later, you went from nobody knowing about the internet to going to your local football stadium and they're going www.redskins.com or, um, well, that's, but, you know, you, you had companies, they all had to get on the Internet in a very short period of time. And that was the 90s. Um, now we're in this period of, of, a, of, a, of a similar paradigm shift, if you'll, you'll forgive the analogies and buzzes, where we started off where satellites were very expensive. They were like mainframes, where it's very expensive to launch a satellite, very expensive to build a satellite, very, very awkward to... Um, get information from that satellite. Um, so it's very costly. So you had this whole mainframe situation where satellites were this holier, you know, resource. 
But the small guys, the, the CubeSat guys, the small sat guys realized that, okay, I don't need to build this $500 million satellite. Um, I can build a satellite for under a million dollars or less and get useful information out of it. So you all of a sudden had um, the shift from mainframes to um, to cellular phones, in essence, where satellites from satellites became a very expensive commodity. That you like a mainframe where you ran it for a decade or more, and you know milked that cow for every single bit out of it. To a cell phone mentality where you buy a cell phone, three years later you buy a new cell phone. Um, you know, in this case, you buy a small satellite. Three to five years later, you throw it out and you launch the new one, and, you, and, and then the new satellites that you launch, um, since you're launching them rapidly, you get um, that technology refresh. Um, you get a constant technology refresh as you put and update your, 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 your technology in orbit. So those big earlier ones, am I putting those further out in orbit than these littler ones that you're talking about now? Uh, do I want them out there further and sitting there longer? Uh, is is there a function? I mean, because I mean, we're talking about orders of magnitude, a $500 yeah, million dollar satellite right. and a million dollar satellite. I got to believe these have vastly different functions. Well, they do and they do, but, and, it, and, and part of that's physics. Um, and there's, and when we talk about physics, we'll talk about the, the physical physics of moving things from point A to point B. Um, in other words, um, when you build that $500 million satellite, in order for it to sit um, over one part of the Earth, you have to push it out 22,000 plus miles. And that costs you a lot of rocket fuel and a big rocket. Um, so if you're going to go put it up there and you know, it's going to be up there for a decade or more, that satellite has to work perfectly. That satellite has to be tested perfectly. And, um, you know, and. You so know, the that, service, the service calls 22,000 miles up aren't very regular, are they? Yeah, that's correct. They're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah basically, basically fault tolerance and, uh, you know, fault tolerance and, and things like that are built into those types of satellites. Now, the other thing about physics is that since you're 22,000 miles out, you have this thing called lag, right? Where, where you know, speed of light starts taking effect. So to go up and back from orbits, half second or more better um, in terms of speed of light and in terms of, you know, all the little nuts and bolts and turnarounds. So that, that half second lag that, sucks. That, that's if I'm moving at the speed of light, which radio transmissions or data transmissions don't. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, yeah. Plus, you get the overhead from data and packet logging. You know, after yeah, that, yeah, yeah. half second starts dragging out a little bit more. But the other thing is that um, I need more power. I need since I'm going twenty three thousand plus miles. If I'm using radio waves, I need a bigger antenna on the ground. Number one, and up in the sky, I need a much larger, more powerful broadcast mechanism in order to get the signal down. So. Between those two things, uh, you know, again, that adds to I need to have a satellite that has big solar arrays because I need the power and I need bigger radios, so I need the power. Um, so all those things add up to to a fact that, you know, geosynchronous orbit, those, those initial satellites were great and that you could put up one and serve a good chunk of the Earth, if not half the Earth, depending upon what radio frequencies you need. Okay. So putting up a small satellite closer to the Earth gives you a lot of benefits. Okay. Since... And so 22,000 miles away from, from the Earth's surface, if, you're, if you fly a small satellite lower at a couple hundred miles, you don't need the big radios. You don't need the big antennas on either end. 
um, all of a sudden you, you, you can do useful work with a satellite that, um, uh, you know, 400 miles and is the size of a wine, uh, a, a, wine bo- a, a box for a wine bottle, um, you know, 30 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Um, you oh, can do really? Use- that, that small? Well, that's kind of like the benchmark. Some and that's really big for some satellites. There are satellite. There are companies that are pushing that and going from from that wine box size down to smaller. Like for instance, Swarm Swarm Technologies has a satellite um, to do IoT stuff. We're not talking broadband or anything like that. But Swarm Technologies has a satellite to pick up data from IoT sensors. That's a size of piece of Texas toast. It literally is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by a quarter centimeter there. And it's, and it's packed with radios and power and, you know, intelligence. Um, Doug, anytime we can work Texas toast into a podcast, I think we've been successful. We've had a good podcast. So thank you for that. Okay. (laughs) So now now I just got to work in donuts and I'll be happy. That's Um, right. Exactly. (laughs) But so, but the thing is that, you know, uh, to borrow from Jerry Pornell, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. In low Earth orbit, the satellites are moving faster. They're not. So um, so if you're out of geosynchronous orbit at 22,000 miles, 22,000 miles away, the satellite moves in a rough orbit at the same time as the Earth rotates. So so, you, so it's always, so there's this illusion of a fixed position. Um if you're in low Earth orbit, those satellites, since they're they're lower, they, they zip around faster. So a single satellite zips overhead, and maybe you see it for, you know, five to ten minutes a day, twice a day for a single satellite. But since the satellites are cheaper, you can build a bunch of satellites. So you've got a satellite zipping overhead, you know, every time you need it, essentially, when you, if you can launch enough satellites. So, so, so two big questions, just as a, as a lay person trying to understand this, Doug, just help me with a couple of things. One, um, I got to believe that my field of vision, my field of view at 22,000 feet is radically different than my field of vision at four, or excuse me, 22,000 miles than it is at 400 miles. So, so am I, I'm getting a smaller slice. I'm getting a smaller picture. Uh, is that, am I accurate in that? I've got to, I got to be getting a much smaller view of the world at 400 miles than I am 22,000. Well, yeah, but I need a smaller camera to see the uh, just if, if if we're talking about imagery, I'm a smaller camera because I'm you know I only have to focus on something that's 400 miles away versus 22,000 miles away if we're talking about imagery, right? Right. And, and it's it, for Earth observation, sure, right? Yeah. And and then you use this term. You've used this term, and I've read it before. Constellations is that literally what I think it means? So there might be a train of a hundred of these that are flying in, in some sort of controlled format or fashion. Is that, is that, is that what we're talking about? Or is it bigger than that? Uh, depends upon the application. Um, like for instance, I'll give you the for instance, the for instance is that if you're talking about communication satellites, things like SpaceX Starlink or the OneWeb constellation, um, SpaceX has over 1500 satellites right now to deliver broadband to the entire world. Okay. Uh, OneWeb is in the process of filling out their constellation. They're at 300 plus satellites, and they'll scale up to about 648 or so satellites to provide broadband acts, broadband coverage to the entire world. But you know, broadband's kind of funny in that you want to have it on all the time, so you need a satellite you can reach all the time over you above. For the um, 
For other applications, you can start off with a few satellites. And as more people get onto your service, you launch more. And then your coverage time, you know, and then your coverage time to take pictures of the world um, gets a lot better. So, um, you know, like if I put up a dozen satellites in the world, I may, to take pictures, to, for, to, to collect imagery, um, I may be able to visit um, places on the earth maybe uh, three to four times a day. But if I increase that number from that handful of a dozen or so, up to 300, all of a sudden I could take pictures of anywhere in the world pretty much 24 by 7. Yeah. So, so you, Doug, you used the term, you said uh, they want to deliver broadband anywhere. So, so are we literally thinking that we're going to deliver internet services bouncing up into space and back all over the planet? So when I go to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I can have internet service there via satellite? Uh, the short answer is to, if they have the licensing, you know, the license. It's all about the politicians. I mean, you could do that today in sub-Saharan Africa if they had landing rights. In other words, broadcast permissions to um, operate within there. Yes, you could. You could have. You could have. Uh, depending upon uh, what network you have, you could have. Well, we'll use we'll use SpaceX, SpaceX as an example. SpaceX could give you up to three hundred megabits a second broadband into a one meter or less than one meter ish dish. Right, and you can get up to thirty meg um, upstream today. Wow! But but that's 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 but remember that's optimal. If I'm if I'm not quite yeah, if I'm not perfectly aligned, right? If I'm not perfectly aligned, or there's trees that you haven't managed to chop down, or other crap in the way, then then that's going to go down. But but if you go to Reddit, don't believe me, believe Reddit. Um, yeah, yeah. If you, go, if you go to Reddit. There are users getting over 300 megabits a second upstream. I mean, downstream, coming down from the sky. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And 30 megabits. So how does that? How does that? How does that get work? Because I know we, you know, here in the U.S., we manage the spectrum via the federal, the FCC, I guess, right? Manages the spectrum and sells that spectrum. Is is when we're going up in space? Do they then take over the spectrum management once you get back inside the atmosphere? When you get over, how do they manage that? Because you used, hey, if there were the appropriate licenses. So I got to imagine I've set up this constellation. I'm spinning satellites around the Earth. I got all this bandwidth. I can stream it down to the guys who have my dish. But a guy in New Jersey and a guy in Nairobi are getting totally different experiences from a regulatory perspective. Um, but conceptually could get the same experience from a bandwidth perspective. Well, from a regulatory perspective, then it's legwork. SpaceX has to go around, or whatever the, the satellite broadband carrier is, has to go around and do the legwork with the local authorities because the local authorities control the radio frequencies within that nation, right? So basically, SpaceX has to go go to that country and go, hi, I'd like to operate in your country and then um, you know work it out so that um, they, they, they get land, like they call landing rights. In other words, permission to operate within the country. Right. Um, landing so rights. Space, okay. Yeah. So, so SpaceX has landing rights or the ability to operate and sell dishes. Well, operate and sell dishes in uh, pretty much most of Europe, uh, parts of Africa. I've seen, and um, definitely Australia, and I think other some parts of Asia. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, there are places where where SpaceX will not operate due to um, government um, uh, control. 
like Russia or China. Is China, I can think, yeah. Russia, Russia and China are very problematic. And um, um, because, um, oh, well, I'm not, but, but who knows? They might get, they might get the, you know, you pay enough people and you have enough lawyers. Anything's possible from a political standpoint. Um, but for right now, you know, I don't see SpaceX operating within China uh, or within Russia. So because there, there's no, there's no uh, desire, I think. Elon Musk likes things simple and, um, you know, having to deal with, with, with Russia would, would give him a certain headaches since he's also selling to Department of Defense. Right. So, Doug, I, as, as I think through this, so I've been to sub-Saharan Africa, I've been to Kenya and, and, and Uganda and, and South Sudan. And the, my first trip ever there was really mind um, uh, expanding for me. I walk into a village, there's no paved roads, there's no sanitation, there's no two-story buildings, there's not an inch of concrete sidewalk anywhere. Um, and yet people were walking up to me with cell phones. And I was like, wait a minute, there's no infrastructure here at all how do you have a cell phone they would walk with me out to the edge of town and show me the cell phone tower that was out there running on batteries and running on a generator. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I get how the tower, how are you running your phone? And they had car batteries with this contraption set up on top of it. And they would plug their cell phone into a car battery and, and, the, and they just completely skipped over the whole landline delivery of telecom in those countries. They're like, Hey, we didn't. We had gotten so far down the path with cellular. We didn't need landlines. Is this the same thing when we think about delivering broadband to those places? Well, you know, it's an interesting trap, and I don't want to say trap, but but um, if I want to, I want to address the meta point that you brought up about Africa. If you take a look at the different fiber projects Google is starting to run into Africa, and the different fiber. Um, uh, the different fiber projects that are that, that there's like a big fiber loop uh, I think that was built by French Telecom um, that runs around Africa and then you get spurs off going into each country's fiber sooner or later shows up and I'm not saying that you know that the place you visited in sub-Saharan Africa I don't know however many years ago or if it was recently but I'm willing to bet that sometime in the next 10 years or 20 years, that cell tower eventually gets hooked up with fiber because you're going to need more broadband in order to service the next generation of phones and to service um, the expanded uh, services that you're seeing bootstrapped off of, off of simple cellular services. Um, so I'll leave it at that point for now. Now, let me shift gears here and talk about... Um, how, how satellite is going to help um, connectivity. Like that cell tower you, you saw in um, sub-Saharan Africa, it's being backhauled somehow, right? It's being, it's, it's, and, and that backhaul may be um, fixed point-to-point -point wireless today, right? And um, so in essence, you need a network or a string, right? A string of tower here, tower here, tower here that, you know, talk to each other. The nice part about um, satellite, and there's 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 two kicks to this. One is that um, you can use satellite broadband that's just coming out. That's going to be low latency because it's close to the Earth. So instead of that half second plus of overhead you have with GeoSync, you have that you know tens of milliseconds um, 
uh, latency delay because you're closer to the Earth. So things like SpaceX and other people in the LEO space delivering broadband will give you what, what I'd say near fiber quality, although that's marketing. We're not really sure, but, but, but you know, near fiber quality delivery of broadband um, to anywhere in the world. So you could, in a place in sub-Saharan Africa, set up a cell site outside of normal coverage, and its backhaul is not fixed wireless point to point, but its backhaul is up to the satellite, and um, and then you get connected into the cellular network uh, via satellite backhaul, and that's really promising for um, uh, like there's big plans in uh, closer to, to here um, in Canada to use um, uh, Leo broadband satellite to do backhaul cellular backhaul in um, in Canada, and then you've got folks like um, the Hardy Airtel working with um, OneWeb to do backhaul in India, Africa, Asia, and other developing world markets. So um, for my friends who don't know the acronyms for space, LEO is low earth orbit. So yes. which is when you're talking about three, 400 miles up, it's, it's low earth orbit stuff, low latency, close to the planet stuff. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. And geo awesome meaning juice. And geo geosynchronous yeah. very far away. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 Doug. Um, another thing that 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 uh, you know, I, I don't know of a simpler way to answer, ask it. Who's putting these satellites up there? Because I think of satellite stuff, and I think about it from a government perspective. I think about it. You know, you you reference the 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 um, you know the shuttle program. I think of people putting things in space are government entities because of the sheer cost of the technology and the sheer cost of propulsion and the rockets and all of it is expensive, but that has changed in the last seven, 10 years. So who's putting satellites up there today? And are we getting rockets lifted off the planet on a regular basis other than just the ones with William Shatner and, and Elon Musk in them? Okay. Um, let me, let me, let me deal with the hype and then we'll go with the reality. And, and I don't want any hype. But, you know, the, the problem is that there's been a media obsession or media focus with um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson as the fighting billionaires to basically throw people up into space for a minute and a half and then bring them back down and then, you know, collect, collect their $250,000, you know, $250,000 for a 10-minute uh, joyride. Um, and, you know, that's cool, but that's not where the money's being made. Um, SpaceX is launching rockets on a regular basis. Um, uh, basically, they get ride share. They do a ride share where they get uh, 20, 30, 40 companies and they put them on top of a Falcon 9 rocket. And uh, SpaceX will, will, is, is launching three times, at least three times a year, these dedicated ride share missions to throw up 20, 30, 40, 50 satellites, 20 to 40. 20, 30, 40, 50 commercial satellites at a time um, uh, in order to build out these constellations. Um, and then, um, but all the money, but to answer your question, question, who's paying for it? Um, it's a mixture of commercial investment and some subsidies from the government. Okay. Um, but all those what, companies that get on that Falcon 9, they're all paying some fee and the business model for SpaceX is we generate enough fees uh, that we cover the cost of d design, development, and deployment of the rocket. Yes, and right now okay. SpaceX is, is and, and right now SpaceX is making money because they built the rocket. They know how to build the rocket. The rocket works. And the and oh by the way, 
um, they the first stage flies back. So there's an initial call. So they can refly it, refuel it, and then send it back up like, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple months later. So so they can reuse the rockets. It's not like, you know, you used to pay, you know, if you want a shiny new Falcon 9 and, and uh, off the, the line, um, it costs you like $60 million for a flight. But SpaceX is now gets back that first stage. So it costs them much, you know, it's much less to launch things up into orbit now because they reuse the first stage. And the first stage, and the thing that, that people, um, if you think, the thing is the first stage, since that's providing most of the power to get things moving fast, the first stage has some very expensive engines in it. And there's not like the, the SpaceX, uh, the Falcon 9 has nine first stage engines, very, very expensive. So if I get the most expensive bits back and I can reuse them, then hallelujah, my cost to, to launch goes, significantly goes down. Um, for launch, uh, SpaceX, for instance, um, they've launched um, the Falcon 9 first stage, or reused the Falcon 9 first stage, up to 10 times so far. Um, so it's not, you know, they used to do it two or three times, and they'd be like, whoops, and then it crashed once. But now they're up to the point where, or the, or they realized that they, they couldn't, you know, it's been evolution. You know, it's like the, you know, first we had our clunky PCs. Now we got our, I got my, my nice Dell um, sitting on here with, that, that, that does gaming. Um, similarly, you know, uh, the initial Falcon 9s, you get two to three flights out of them. Now the Falcon 9, they can get up to 10 flights out of them. And um, SpaceX has said that they may be able to squeeze more than 10 flights out of them in future models that roll off the production that's awesome. 10, 10, I mean, you were, yeah, that's an incredible change to the economics. If you can use the thing over and over 10 times, it just fundamentally changes it. So, so let me ask you, and I may drive us down a ditch here. I apologize. The, are we getting better at the fuel that we deploy in this? Because I've always understood that the fuel, the amount of propulsion um, compared to the weight of the fuel was always tough. Are we getting better at the fuel uh, for these, for these rockets? Well, I, I think that, yeah, but cost of fuel is a fractional, um, fractional. Yeah, uh, not, not from a cost. I mean, weight, the cost of how much propulsion we get versus how much weight. Because, right, we're moving every kilo you move out of Earth orbit, there's amount of propulsion you have to move. Well, some of that is the weight of the fuel. That's what I'm asking. Are, are we getting better at the ratio of the weight of the fuel to the amount of propulsion we get out of the fuel? We've got some better optimization, yes. And, um, and, that's, and that's, but, but, you know, I don't, you know, we could nerd down this, we could nerd down this for a while, but, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, when it costs you, you know, $60 million to build a shiny new Falcon 9, right? Um, for And that, that includes a launch cost. Launch cost um, for the fuel is probably mumble mumble, um, a couple hundred thousand dollars of... Okay, so it's not a big part of the problem anymore. Couple hundred thousand. Well, yeah, because you're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars in uh, basically kerosene, JP4, um, jet fuel. You know, basically highly processed jet fuel and liquid oxygen. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so it's not a big. It, it, when we're looking at the equation, it's not a big enough problem in the equation anymore for us to spend a lot of energy on. Got it. For okay. for us for us for if for moving anywhere from from uh, geo anything all the way up to geosynchronous orbit, it's not a problem. You okay. want to go to you, you want to go to the moon, then you start getting into, into refueling and and mining stuff, and you know, uh, and, and whole, mining yeah. asteroids for oil, not for oil, mining asteroids for for uh, ice, 
but you know, right now it's a, it's not a big deal in, Got the, it. in the scheme of things. Okay. That's what I wanted to hear. It's not a big deal. And so here's my next question. Talk to me about business applications. Who's getting, I mean, so, so I got, I got why I need broadband and somebody's going to pay me for that broadband connection. I got that business model, but that's just one of them. Give me a handful of other business models of why having satellites in space close, close by in Leo uh, that allow me to make a, a real business uh, case for what I'm doing up there. Okay. Um, the best example that I can give you brings in a bunch of stuff and, and I don't want to play the African card, but I got to play the African card. I was, I was at a conference a few about a month ago, and um, there was a company that does uh, data analytics, and she and they started talking about how they monitor pipelines in Nigeria for theft, um, oil pipelines for because you know oil's a big deal, oil money fuels the government, so somebody coming in and sneaking in and pirating oil out of the pipeline is a bad thing for everybody. So um, the, the the person telling this story says, well, here's what happens. First of all, we uh, have uh, we, we tap into the commercial satellites that are available today to monitor radio traffic on the ground. So when so they have a, a satellite, a, a trio of satellites operated by a commercial company that fly over the Nigerian pipeline area and they listen for anomalous radio traffic. What do I mean by that? They listen for handheld radio traffic in the middle of nowhere, essentially. Um, because if you're in the middle of nowhere next to a pipeline in Nigeria, if you're not a guy... They don't have people driving the pipelines up and down all the time. So if there are people doing using hand, VHF type of uh, handheld radios near a pipeline, well, maybe there's something funny going on there. We need to have a closer look. So having that indicator or that, that piece of information saying there's, there's some radio traffic here. We don't know what, exactly what's going on, but we want to look for other pieces of evidence to indicate if this is legitimate or if there's something going on, if there's something illegal going on. So that information runs from one computer model and, and there's a machine-to-machine a -machine communication or however you want to call it, where um, a message goes to a satellite uh, tasking website and it goes, we need you to take pictures of this area of interest because we don't know what's going on there. So, there'll be, so there might be messaging going to optical satellites that is you know, visible. And there also be message going to a radar satellite. So then those, then, then the AI, and this all happens with magical AI. No, but you know, this all happens via processes. So the satellites are automatically tasked to fly over this area of interest um, where there's radio, act, radi, radio activity, not radioactive, radio activity. Yeah. Over radio activity. I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Over the yeah. pipeline. Um, to look at it in radar and look at it in visual. Now, the visual people are looking for, um, well, the visual and, the, and the, 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 the radar satellites are looking for two things. They're looking for a boat nearby, because usually a pipeline is near a waterway, or they're looking for a barge. Because if you're going to steal a lot of oil, you either, either need a freighter or you need a barge with a bunch of barrels on it. So what happens is the pictures come in, the AI looks for images of, a barge or image of um, uh, boat, and if there's a boat nearby, and there's and there's then you've got there's boat nearby, and if this boat doesn't have its um, transponder turned on, 
meaning that it's a, a dark boat, meaning it's it's doing something illegal, all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need to call the authorities because somebody's stealing oil out of this pipeline. And all from space. All from space. Yeah. Because you've got four different, because you've got the, the radar satellites, you've got an optical imaging satellite, you've got an RF satellite that's li listening for radio signals, and then you've got a, a fourth pair of satellites that are looking to see if that, that boat um, is transmitting its uh, transponder signal. And, and, all, and all this is automated um, via AI. And I mean, there'll be alerts sent out on, you know, somebody will get alerts and at a certain level of, of activity, that human being will get involved and they'll, and they'll basically take the data, that, the information and call the authorities and going, hey, we got some stuff, something that we think is going down here. Can you send out, can you send somebody out to drive out there or fly over there um, and, and see if there's, there's that? What a great real world example. And it, and it pipeline security. And, and not only that, but the, the fascinating thing here is that, that I mean, if you, you take a step back, is that it's a beautiful example, but it's also a beautiful use case on you're doing multiple source information, right? You're using AI or machine learning to, to listen for or look for activity and process this process the imagery to actually look for boat, look for um, barge. And um, you're using AI basically to, to walk through that. Um, uh, it's all machine learning. It's all AI that's collecting the information up until the point where there's an email going out to like the Coast Guard, um, the local Coast Guard in Nigeria, um, or the local um, customs agency in Nigeria going, hey, there's theft here. You need to go, you know, we think there's theft here. Here's the evidence we have. So, yeah. Wow, fascinating example. Yeah. yeah. It, Data in space, saving pipelines everywhere. Well, I mean, but but if we, we throw out the pipeline example, you know, we're only scratching the surface of what's going on. We can take multiple sources of data and mash it and apply it. I mean, this is equally applicable for, um, you know, uh, looking at um, after a hurricane, you can fly out and look at what infrastructure has been damaged um, using satellite imagery. If you're getting satellite imagery every couple of hours, you can fly out and see, you know, what telephone poles are down or what you know, where the damage is in specific areas, like insurance companies are going to be tapping into this information um, rather than send out agents. They'll be able to do a before and after picture. They'll take, you know, they'll have imagery on file where where they'll pre-hurricane and then they'll be able to take imagery post-hurricane or post other natural disaster event and compare the two and go, aha, okay, these buildings are a total loss. We just need to write checks and not send anybody out there. Um, and then, uh, these buildings, you know, we need to send out an agent to evaluate to see if they can salvage. But, but I mean, again, there's this whole, there's a lot of information that you can collect from the sky and, um, and we just, we're, we're just tapping into the, 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 the individual, the, the individual bits and pieces of it. And the more information you get, you can meld them together, um, like a pipeline example in order to do use, to do useful work. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, Doug, this has been super helpful. We really, really appreciate you you joining us. Um, thank you for uh, for getting on the podcast and talking about space and talking about data in space. And um, look forward to 
seeing as things continue to change, as we get more constellations and more applications and it continues to change. Uh, I, I go back to the first time we broke the sound barrier and remember that and now think about where we are. It's a, It's been an incredible journey for what we do up there. Well, I, I think the thing that people lose track of is, I, I, give, you an, I, I give you my two examples here. Um, the SpaceX launch that was done over the summer um, the satellites on board are collecting multiple terabytes of information a day, multiple terabytes of information per day. So that means that by the end of the year, you've added a petabyte plus of useful information. And that only increases over time. That's just one launch. And as these people go from dozens of satellites in orbit, to hundreds of satellites in orbit, you, you get this dramatic scale of, of information we're going to be able to collect um, about the rest of the world. It's, it's, it's going to be very cool. Well, I'll just say this as a guy who builds warehouses for data, the <laughs> fact that we're collecting data from space is a good thing for me. So I, I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I, you're going to. Well, it, it, what's 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 fun, too, about that is that that some of your customers will start tapping into that data and um, all of a sudden it'll be like, oh, well, we need to buy more disk space or we need to buy or we need to build a we need to build a hyperscalable um, AI in order to process this information. So, so you get a couple of those customers and it'll be, you know, you'll need a couple more warehouses plus. Thank goodness. All right. Parting question, favorite star Wars and favorite star Trek episode. And, and I say episode of you, of course, I mean the TV show. So favorite TV episode and favorite star Wars movie. Okay. You're, you're hurting me real bad. All right. We're going to, we're going to go with, <laughs> we're going to go with star Wars first. You have to go with the original um, the original Luke Skywalker Han Solo because that set the universe, that set the character. Here, here, and absolutely number one, a, and it was a beautiful genre because um, um, you know it laid the foundation for everything else, and and you know just blew everybody's mind. Um, yeah, yeah. Star Trek is a lot harder because you you know you start you know are you talking original series? Are you talking TNG? Are you talking Discovery? Um, so there's all kind. I'm going with the three <laughs> years on television original series with William Shatner, best episode in Shatner's three years on TV. And there's several to choose from. I know, and it's really hard. I mean, Edge of Tomorrow probably. I'd say that Edge, one's good. Edge of Tomorrow yep. and um, um, I can't remember the name of it. The one with Khan. Um, yeah. And um, I can't, you know, Space Seed. Was it Space Seed? Yeah. yeah, you got me on the name. And I, I'm not going to remember. The one with um, President Lincoln, um, where he's, you know, the, the guy can make Shatner's voice and Spock's dying. And there's they have multiple historical characters. I can't remember that episode. But that's one of my favorites. I can't remember the name of the episode. So. But love the original Star Trek. Yeah, um, definitely. But, um, you know, we could spend another, like, half hour talking about all those we'll we'll have a we'll have a whole episode just on star trek i'm just gonna come back and just do star trek i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out uh, as my parting thought on your question that i have a really soft spot for lower decks because it's funny as hell yeah that's good i i I, I really like lower decks i watched star trek as a kid and thought what are they doing walking around with these things that they talk into and they can hear other people there you go. Now Doug, thank you so much for joining. That's right. right. That's right, me. That's right. Live long and prosper. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Doug. We appreciate you joining us. 